So this talk's entitled The Journey into the Authentic Heart of Yoga. And what we're doing here is we're exploring the why, the fundamental question of why do we do any of these practices? Why do we meditate? Why do we do Hatha Yoga? Why do we do Pranayama? Why do we do Deep Yoga Nidra? Why do we chant? Why do we repeat the mantra? You know, and there's many ways that can be answered and you could say, well, it's to relieve my stress. And for many people, that's the reason that they begin doing this is because they've just got a mind that they can't cope with. And, and it's effective for that. But the fundamental premise on which all yoga is based is that suffering is part of the human condition. Suffering has been the problem for humans for as long as we've been humans. And the suffering I'm talking about is the mental anguish that comes as a product of the ego not getting what it sees as its right or, 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 or not having things um, the way that it wants them to be. So any form of discontentment, dissatisfaction, any sense of lack, any sense of yearning, any sense of inadequacy, any sense of victimization, or if you flip it around, any sense of dominance, of control, of exploitation, of um, suppression, is all egoic in nature. It's basically me versus the world and it's all about survival. From the ego standpoint, it's only about, the only thing it really understands is survival. I have to survive. If it's a contest between my ego and your ego, my ego will always see that it must win. That's the nature of ego. I mean, you, you can then say, well, yeah, the rational mind and we have education and civilization and laws and we can start to reach social agreements where we can try and define uh, a system where our egos work together in harmony and maybe we can make a better world. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But if push comes to shove and you're the last, there are only two people left on the lifeboat, the likelihood is you're not the one that's going to volunteer to jump into the water. Because the ego is tied to physical, the need for physical survival. It's hardwired into the physical organism. That's what's driving it. That's what's driving fear. Our fear is driven by ego. Well, think of all the things that you could be frightened about. A lot of them are physical harm. The COVID thing is a case in point. Look at the, uh, the riots over toilet paper. Fear of missing out. It's all predicated on me versus the world. Right? So the yogis looked at that and they said, look, we think that there's a fundamental issue here and that is that people are not recognizing that they are more than just their ego. And until they can identify with something larger than themselves, which is more inclusive, then we're always going to have individual human suffering. So the whole purpose of yoga is to try and elevate us to that level of lived awareness, not just a theory. I mean, I can tell you all this and you can accept it intellectually, but I can guarantee that the next time your ego comes under pressure, you're going to forget all about it and you're going to revert because the ego is programmed to that. And so 
Step one in the program is to firstly become aware when the egoic mind is functioning. So what we're going to do is attune you to ego states of mind. So you can, the clues are anything that is I, me or mine is egoic. Social media is the absolute ego's playground. You know, I don't use Facebook much at all, but LinkedIn I'm on for business reasons and people are com continually posting. I'm so excited to be speaking at this event. Do you ever see that? I'm so delighted to have received this award. And all they're really saying is, look at me, look at me. Because in this time that we're living in now, the greatest threat to ego is the loss of relevance. So social media is the antidote, the ego's antidote to loss of relevance. Right? So just be conscious that whenever you're engaging in any activity, and you have to search deep, and it's painful to look at this part of yourself, is to say, how much of this is me? Is me trying to say, I'm, I'm important too. That's ego. Okay, so that's the problem, because it's all right when things are going your way, but the moment you get blocked, the moment you hit an obstacle, the moment you can't, the moment you're ignored, the moment you're discredited, uh, the moment you're abused, the moment anything attacks the ego, you will feel suffering if you're attached to the ego. So stage one is to identify when the ego is in operation. Stage two is to have techniques and strategies that you can use to not set yourself up for the continual suffering that will arise when things in the external environment, don't go your way. And meditation is one of those. So we'll move to the next slide, Chantal. Now, there was a being in India, and I managed not to get to his ashram before he died, but I was in the vicinity and hadn't really known about him at the time, but his name was Tatwala Baba. And he was a very, very powerful yogi. And he, there he is on the left, that photo, he was about 80 years of age. So and you'll see in the next slide, there's photos of him as well at the same time, and he looks like he's in his 30s. This is the power of his practice. He didn't do a lot of hatha yoga, but he got up very early. He meditated six hours a day. He foraged for fruit, and he didn't, never, never had any money. He was living in a place where uh, he could live on wild uh, sweet potato and he would eat the, the roots and you can eat the leaves as well, you can boil them. And so that's all he basically ate. And he was unbelievably powerful being. And he said, what is the aim of all beings? It is the attainment of infinite happiness, a life free from suffering, and the attainment of eternal happiness is what we want. So he's basically stating a truism but he's reminding us that that's, that also is the purpose of yoga. So we're not saying uh, you're going to overcome your ego and then you won't suffer, but by the way, you're not going to be very happy either. We're going the opposite. We're saying, you, well, do you want happiness beyond anything that you can understand that is permanent and not capable of being diminished or attacked? Then this is why you do yoga. So that he's holding the promise. And in fact, if you go to the next slide. Okay, so that's him 
in all of those, uh, he's there, dreadlocks down to the ground, um, obviously a very fit state of being. Um, now on the other slide here, he's there in the middle wearing only a loincloth, a lungodi, and he's next to the Maharishi, the Beatles teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he's come down from the mountains. There's actually his little ashrams up behind the Maharishi ashram up in the hill where we went last year and we met his sole disciple that maintains the ashram and we talked about Tatwala Baba, but he came down on this one day on the 30th of March, 1969. So I was in high school then, probably just getting into, interested in meditation. And, and he gave this talk to the students, the Westerners that were studying to be meditation teachers at the Maharishi Ashram, where the movies were at the beginning of the, the series. He said, the, the aim of every human is the attainment of eternal happiness, a life free from suffering. Um, now, we should discriminate and analyse if there is anything in the world that can give us permanent eternal happiness. From the ant to the cosmos, we are all within a field of change, that is, relative values. So by relative values is a world of duality, good, bad, hot, cold, adequate, inadequate, dominant, submissive, this is the relative plane that we all know. So he said everything within this realm is subject to change. Infinite happiness can only come from something which could be immortal, non-changing and eternal. So here he is laying out the premise that if you want infinite happiness, you've got to go beyond the limits of the material world into the realms where only yoga can take you these practices. The, what is the goal? It's the infinite knowing of our own self and capital S, not the egoic self, right? This is the bigger conception of self. And then he says something really interesting. He says, we don't have to seek, we don't have to search, we don't have to make efforts. It's there present everywhere. Wherever you are, in whatever reign of time or place, that self is there wherever we are in whatever time. Only we have to take our awareness to that level and that's it. Having forgotten that level of life, we are seeking that eternal happiness. So what he's saying, this is a pretty challenging um, idea, we think, because of our conditioning, that in order to attain those valuable things, we have to work for them. Even coming to Hatha Yoga classes, going to meditation classes, it all implies effort. What he's saying and what you'll see the other teachers are about to say is that the state that we're seeking to find is already present. It's already here. That state of infinite awareness that you might have experienced when we did the meditation, it, didn't, it wasn't not there before. It was there, but we, we miss it because we're too focused on mind and drama and where is the state of infinite awareness? It's right here now. It's so close, it's staring us in the face. And what these guys, these yogis are saying is, all you have to do is, you don't have to become anything that you're not, you just have to drop those things that are standing between you and that experience. Do you follow? It's already there. And the effort and the practice and everything we do is really to 
I think, tune the instrument enough that we can see what's already there. It's like cleaning the windows. So you've got the sun outside, but the windows are so caked with dirt and mud that the light can't shine through. The sun is still is always there, but what we're doing is we're just cleaning, clearing it out. So the effort, we're not creating the experience, we're just allowing it to become accessible to us. So there is some effort required, but not in the larger sense to create the experience that's already there. And in fact, whenever you feel happy from whatever cause, what they'd say, the yogis would say, is the happiness is it was your own happiness. It's just that the external thing was the trigger. So if you, what do you like, chocolate? You, you yearn for chocolate, the shops are closed, you drive up to Coles and it's still open, you grab the block of lint, you get home, you take the chocolate, and then for a moment there's bliss. You get the happiness because of the fulfillment of the desire. But that, where do you experience the happiness? It's internal. It's not in the chocolate. But we mistake the cause, the apparent cause, for the result. And what he's saying is the result is already there. You just got to see it. You got to know how to go there directly. So um, I won't read you the rest of the speech, but it goes on. He does say this though. He says, having gained this beautiful, perfect human nervous system, if we have known that element of the self, in other words, if we can appreciate that there is some higher existence that we can tap into, then we've really used this wonderful diamond-like gift, this diamond-like nervous system, which is capable of giving that eternal bliss. See what he's saying? The nervous system is diamond-like. So he's saying that the instruments of perception are necessary. So it's through the optimization, through the yoga, through the practices that we, we access that aspect of our being that is able to directly perceive ourselves as this infinite, boundless, pure, perfect state. And, and in other words, you've got to refine the system in order to perceive what's already there. Those are the two key premises. Let's go to the next slide. Now there was a beautiful yogini called Ananda Maima that lived at the same time and died actually at the same time, I think. Within a year or two, there's several of these yogis all died at the same time, which seems quite interesting. But she was almost born enlightened. She was a young child that was already going into spontaneous ecstatic states. High ecstasy. Was not suffering like other children when things didn't happen. She was in this blissful state. Um, I'd been to her ashram in, in Haridwar and you can still feel the tremendous power that's there. She said, in every moment you only have one real choice, to be aware of the self or identify with the body and the mind. So in every moment you've got the choice. So what are you choosing? Where, which choices are leading to suffering and which choices are leading to happiness? She's pointing us in that direction. She's not giving us the experience, but she's showing us. There is, the, there is your decision. 
where are you going to invest your awareness? Okay, if you invest your awareness in the body, let's just say, what would that look like for um, a person in our society? If you were going to, let's say you thought that your happiness lay in having a perfect body. So that means perfect complexion, perfect weight, radiant smile, white teeth, um, you know, the t total Instagram thing. But is it always going to be like that? So Tatwala Baba says there's everything subject to change. So even if you thought that you were capable of achieving the body that would give you the most amount of happiness, can you rely on that? For how long can you rely on that? Before the first wrinkle shows or the grey hairs come or you know, disease comes. So what she's saying is for as long as you're identifying with body and mind is the same. If you had the perfect mind that knew everything or that you could summon anything at any time that was never stressed, that was always calm, that never suffered, then you probably wouldn't need to do yoga. But we all know that that can't be relied, neither the body or the mind are reliable for us. So we've got to find other ways that we can short circuit the process so that we can tap into the greater sense of being which is not subject to change. That's the key point. So the sense of self that you carry with you now, the pure I am, has never changed in your whole life from when you were born to now. Was there ever a time that you didn't feel like you were, you existed? If I asked you when you were three years old or maybe five or six, how, how does it feel to be you? You would just say, well, I, I am, I'm just, I'm just me. And if you close your eyes and I say, do you still sense that? You'd say, yeah. You see what I'm saying? This pure sense of I am never changes. Your body changes, your mind changes, but the I am does not change. So become more familiar with identifying with that which does not change. Let's go to the next slide. So now we get into the hardcore Advaita Vedantans. Ramana Maharshi had an experience when he was 15 years old in, I think, Tamil Nadu in the east coast and south. He'd never been sick all his life until he was 15 and when he was 15 he got so sick he thought he was going to die. So he was staying at his uncle's house and he went and locked himself in the bedroom and he lay on the floor and he imagined what it would feel like to die. He imagined what would happen if he felt all his organs shutting down. He went through the whole process just to understand what that was. And, he, and a remarkable revelation came to him. That he felt that some part of him would still exist even if he died. And so he spent the next... It almost came to him in, as a complete experience, almost instant enlightenment, when he got to the point where he thought, I'm not my body or my mind, bang, it came. We're not all that lucky that we're going to get it so fast, but he got it so fast and for the rest of his life he was really just reminding people of the fact that um, the question you really should be asking is, who am I? The self-inquiry is the thing that will lead you to the greater, the, truth, the greater truth of who you actually are. And that's the purpose of yoga again, is to bring us 
continually back to that question. The question, who am I, is not really meant to give you the answer. The question, who am I, is meant to dissolve the questioner. So basically, if you keep inquiring over and over, what is this sense of I am? This is a practice, by the way, in its own right. It's called vichara, so yogic or meditative practice. You're continually delving into the felt sense of the I am in the present moment. Eventually, you'll get a breakthrough. The ego, will just, the ego has no space within that inquiry. And they often use a negation. Am I the body? Am I the mind? Am I the senses? Am I this? Am I that? And it's a negation. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Let's go to the next one. Now, Nisargadatta was in the same vein, probably even a little more direct. He said, once you know with absolute certainty that nothing can trouble you but your own imagination, you come to disregard your desires and fears, concepts and ideas, and live by truth alone. That's a powerful concept. How much of your fear is imaginary? How much of your fear is based on what might happen but hasn't happened? Or what happened in the past and now is gone? This is why they talk about living in the moment. Because the suffering cannot survive in the moment. It's only thoughts of what could go wrong. Like the COVID thing is another case in point. You see the hysteria, the media beat up this whole fear of um, um, what might happen. So you take precautions. I'm not saying we should be reckless, but don't let fear be the thing that's governing your behaviour. Now, Sailor Bob is based in Melbourne, and I saw him a couple of years ago, and he's again in the same school of thought. Recognise the naturalness that you are, pure, all-pervasive, space-like, ever-expressing, spontaneous presence, this concept of you being present, as presence. Awareness, with no reference point, having any substance or independent existence. Now, I mean, are you finding this challenging to get your head around, this idea that you are not, that you are something greater than the body and mind? Some, I mean, you would be forgiven if you found that a challenging idea. If you go and sit with Sailor Bob, they don't, these guys don't take any prisoners. You say, I'm suffering. He says, who is it that suffers? Well, you say, well, it's my mind. He goes, okay, are you your mind? He goes, is your mind there when you're asleep? You go, well, not really. He goes, are you suffering when you're asleep? Where is the mind then? You know, they, they keep cutting the ground from under you. It's, it's hardcore. This is real. This is the Advaita path. It's not Krishna, Kirtan, love and flowers and stuff. This is like these guys are going for the jugular and they're saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. This is the fast path to liberation. It's very uncomfortable. But if you're up for it, this is the quickest way through. Okay, this is like a frontal attack on the ego. Let's go next. This was my teacher. Go deeper and deeper into meditation to where the state of extraordinary ecstasy awaits you. 
when you reach that state, you will become it. You will know I am that. So my teacher was a lot softer. That's not like you're not everything that you think you are. This is more the go within and feel the expanded ecstasy that you are and then you will know that you're it. So you, do you like that one a bit better? That's like a little less confrontational. He could be very confrontational, but um, that was the basic teaching. And if we go to the next one, Chantal, his teacher again, uh, Bhagavan Nichananda, very rarely spoke. He would wander around through India. He had so much power, there were stories of him stopping a locomotive with his thoughts. Or when they were building the ashram, I'd been to the tunnel com complex in Kerala. He built a series of meditation caves under the ground and he hired local workers to dig them and to cement them all and make them all. And he would pay them. Every week he'd go and tell them to look under some rock and the exact amount of money would be there that they were owed and they couldn't figure out where the money was coming from. And the police thought he might have had a counterfeiting operation. So they actually raided the place. This is a true story. It's documented um, eyewitnesses. They raided the place. There was a British superintendent of police. The British were still controlling India then. He came in with them and, um, and uh, they challenged him and they said, where are you getting this money from? And he laughed and he said, come, follow me. He went, took him into the center of the jungle and he jumped into a lagoon that was filled with just mud and water and there were snakes and whatever. And he dived down in under the water and he starts pulling out all this money and just throwing it in the air and laughing wildly like a madman. He was manifesting this stuff. And the British police officer said at the time, he said, look, I think we're dealing with something pretty special here. I think we shouldn't pursue this investigation. And then the story goes on the way out when they left the ashram, there was a new street sign that had automatically, miraculously appeared and had the name of the British officer on it. That he, the, name, the street had been named after him. That happened like literally minutes after this encounter. So it couldn't have occurred through any physical means. But this is the power that these yogis have because they have the power of manifestation. Once they tap into these greater, the superconscious mind, I mean, it's like, you know, you can create anything. I've never seen levitation though. I've seen things that look close to levitation, but I've never actually quite witnessed it. But maybe that they say you're not meant to show off your abilities. Um, so he says, Nichananda, the real sunrise is to be seen in the sky of consciousness. This is the most excellent sunrise. The whole universe is to be seen in the heart space, in oneself, just as the sun is reflected in the water placed in a small mud vessel. When we travel by a cart, the whole world seems to be moving. Likewise, the whole universe can be known in yourself. So this is again slightly less confrontational than the Advaita school, but they're saying go within, go within, keep, keep going within, find that permanent enduring reality within yourself. Know that that is who you are. And that is basically the premise of yoga understanding that the asanas and everything else is the beginning of the journey, it's not the end of the journey. The end of the journey is becoming this most resplendent, powerful, loving and compassionate being that is capable. If you want to change the world, why not amplify your powers so that you lose fear, 
that you have the power to be a positive influence around everyone around you.